Um, all right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do, turn to Genesis chapter 2. So we, we, we decided not to, to cover this portion, and I'm glad I didn't, um, last week, and, uh, and decided just to single it out um, this morning. Um, so I, I'm hoping this will be helpful um, to do so. Um, and just so you know, just in case you were setting yourself up for this to be a, a, a mini-marriage seminar, you're going to be really disappointed if that's what you came in, in, here, into, in here to hear. Um, you'll get some of that, but um, that's not necessarily the point of the text primarily. So, um, so we'll, get, we'll get into all of that here in just a moment. But let me read. I'm just going to read from uh, verse 18 to verse 25 in Genesis chapter 2. This is God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. To the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman who brought, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. It's entirely true and is given to us in love. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would teach us even more about what, uh, what it means to flourish as your creation. What it means to, to be truly human. And so, God, I pray that you would reveal those truths to us from your word today, that you would um, strike away any presuppositions that we uh, might have as we approach um, this portion of your word, God, that might uh, distort what we hear or what we think and help us to have fresh ears and minds um, to hear and to understand this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was reminded this week uh, about the year that uh, Apple first released the iPhone, which is back in 2007. Um, so I went back and watched the announcement on YouTube. And the funny thing about, uh, about, it, is, about it now, I guess, is, is the gasp of amazement and the excited cheers. I mean, the, the crowd is erupting in applause and shouting over the, the giant screen that's announced on the iPhone, which is tiny now compared to what we have. Or the multi-touch feature that was described where you can actually touch it with your fingers and control it and slide the screen up and down. It's amazing. And then the two-megapixel camera. Everybody went berserk over that. Now it's 12 megapixels. So now, when a new iPhone is announced, you've probably seen it, it's not as exciting as it was back in 2007. It's kind of like, eh, you know, what else do you got for me? 
This is not that exciting. We're no longer really wowed by the new technology. Just give us something that we can just use on a database. That's at least how I think about the iPhone now. I'll just keep my old iPhone. Thank you very much. But now I think marriage, compared to when it was first revealed by God back in the garden, back in the beginning, receives a very similar reaction that the iPhone does now. You can take it or leave it. It's really not that special as it once was when it was first announced. And you see this now as more and more people are waiting to get married in our culture on purpose. Or the expectation of marriage has been greatly misconstrued in our culture. I read this week uh, about women in Mexico who uh, marry trees. Or, uh, it's a true story. Or the rise of sologamy, which I've never heard of, which is people uh, marrying themselves, which essentially is just a narcissistic way to throw yourself a party. So just, that's what that is. Or even uh, throuple marriages, which is uh, someone marriage, um, marrying multiple people. And then, of course, you have homosexual marriage, which is being married to someone of the same sex. So according to our modern culture, marriage and human sexuality, for that matter, is something to be used um, to fulfill our ideas of flourishing. This is what I believe will bring me happiness. This is what I uh, believe will bring me flourishing. And so this is what I will do. Even though it's completely against how God has created it. So this not only obviously puts marriage off the rails, but it puts uh, all other human relationships off the rails as well. And as Christians, we need to understand and be able to teach what the Bible teaches about marriage and about human sexuality. We need to be very clear on what it is the Bible actually says about these two subjects. Because people want answers. And it's only within biblical Christianity that you have the right answers. So our text today, I think, I believe, shows us three realities about, uh, about marriage, but also about human sexuality that arise from marriage. So this, this, this is why I said this is not necessarily any type of marriage seminar, because I think this has something to say to all of us, married or not. So first, it is that we are made for community or companionship or union. Second is that we are made for each other. And then thirdly, that marriage is made by God. Made for community, made for each other, and made by God. So first, made for community. After letting us know in chapter 1, verse 31, uh, that all was very good. Every part of creation, God says, is not only good, it is very good. God acknowledges in chapter 2, verse 18, that something is not good. I don't know if you caught that there. Something is not good. And God is saying that, that what is not good is that man is alone. 
which is interesting because man is not technically alone here. He has uh, all of the animals around him. Every species of creation is there with him. He's even there with God himself. Some commentators say that God uh, was probably standing shoulder to shoulder with Adam as he named the animals. He really wasn't alone alone. But still, it's God who says his aloneness is not good. Now, just a couple of things here is that this first and foremost, should open our eyes to the false notion that says that you can get by on your own. That all you need is yourself to survive in this world. And that's who you will depend on from here until the day that you die. Or, in the church, the lie that says your spirituality is first and foremost personal. And that you don't necessarily need other people to to be in your life, i.e. this place here, corporate worship, in order to grow as a Christian. But I can tell you this, after almost 20 years of pastoral ministry, the people I see struggle the most in my pastoral ministry are those who either avoid or neglect community. And specifically, those who um, don't see the church as this means to community. So they can say, well, I can just stay home. I can just do my own thing. I can go out in creation and go camping or hunting or whatever it is that you uh, think that you can draw closer to God in besides this place here. And those are the people that I see who struggle the most with sin, who struggle the most with depression and anxiety. And on and on the list goes. Verse 18 proves these ideas of independence wrong. God is saying that people need other people. Why? Because man was created this way. As one scholar noted on the the nature of fellowship between a, a man and his dog, and I don't mean to like, harp on people. Well, I have a dog, okay? Um, I don't mean to harp on you if you really love your animals or whatever, but, but we live in a country that spends $490 million a year on Halloween costumes for pets. Otherwise, I wouldn't say anything, but that's the, that's the state that we're in. So this one scholar says, it is possible for a man and a dog to have great fellowship. They can spend many enjoyable hours together. They can play games. They can show and share affection. But the fellowship must be on the dog's level because the dog can only communicate on that level. Meaning, there is no other creature in God's creation that can rise to the level of humanity. The dog cannot give you the kind of companionship that you are created for by God. So Adam obviously recognized this as he not only named the animals, and just to say, Adam was not just kind of standing standing here in the garden and God was kind of passing along these animals before him and he was just kind of taking random guess and saying, you know what, that looks like that could be an elephant and so I'm just going to call it that. Or this, this name and that name. And just because it's familiar. No, Adam 
actually gave careful study to every creature that God had created. So at this point, Adam, Adam knows their, their nature. He knows, knows the way in which they live. He knows what kind of food they're eating. He knows what kind of, um, kind of what life they're kind of leading as, as animals. And he knows their relationships. He can see it taking place. So a side note worth mentioning here, because of that, is that Adam's study of creation, which is a scientific study of creation, we could say, that is what told Adam that there was not another species at this particular time that was suitable to him. Adam's careful study. God didn't spell that out to him. Adam studied the creation, and he came to that conclusion on his own. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So everything that God had just created in chapter 1, Adam is looking at and studying and recognizing. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So just to tell you, this, this is a clear refutation of evolutionary theory. One commentator I read came to this logical conclusion that I think is really helpful. He said, It is abundantly clear and certain that he had not, Adam had not recently evolved from any of these animals. If the latter were true and his body were essentially an ape's body or any variation of it, it seems strange that he could find nothing, nothing in common with either parents or siblings. On this point, the notion of human evolution confronts and contradicts the plain teaching of Scripture. Which is what we have before us, the plain teaching of Scripture. And so this, this simple creational element concerning human companionship is a foundational truth about what it means to be truly human. This is why there was a, there was a mental health uh, so many mental health cases that arose during quarantine back in 2020. Because people were alone. People were, people were without companionship because people need other people, Christian or not. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 9-12 through 12 lets us know again that this is a biblical idea. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So the whole idea of being united with another, it, it just it completely defeats any other argument that could be made against creation. So we can conclude that a full life is found in true community. Well, the second way that we see this, and I think is the most important, is that we see this in God's nature. God is in, him, in, in Himself a God of community and a God of companionship. 
Because he is a Trinitarian being. God is one in three, three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so from the, from the very start of, of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, although you don't see the word Trinity anywhere in the Scriptures, you do see the reality of the Trinity in the Scriptures. Every person of the Godhead is present in creation. All three. And they're active. And they're creating. And they're sustaining. And this has great implications for both you as an individual, but also in your relationship with others. Because we are created in God's image, and because He is a living reality of perfect fellowship, that is why you and I desire and even need fellowship. That's why we feel the pangs of loneliness. And that desire is within you because you are created in the image of God. There's no other reason. You are like God in this way. So your pursuit and practice of community also gives testimony to the Trinitarian reality when you do that. Our confession says, in the London, London Baptist Confession of Faith says about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation, the foundation of all of our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. It's the foundation of all of our communion with God. So essentially what this means is to not believe in the Trinitarian God is to not know true community. And to not know, so avoid or run from, true community is to not know fully the triune God. Because He is a God of community. If you are avoiding community, you will not fully know the God of the Bible. Adam recognizes this in verse 20. Out of all of the animals God had created, Adam knows that none are fit for him. He recognizes that he is alone. But he also recognizes that he needs community. None in all of God's creation are his equal. None can enter into true community with him. Why? Because none match the Trinitarian makeup that he has been created after. There is none that can help him like one who is like him. And that one has to be another made in God's image. So basically, he recognizes that he is made to have communion with another. And the closest possible communion is that between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And because, as we'll see in our second reality that is highlighted in marriage, is that man and woman are made for each other. So in verses 21 through 23, uh, there is not a help, because there's not a helper fit for Adam, God creates one that is. As Adam was prepared for Eve, even before she existed, Eve is prepared for Adam. 
She is made to be his ideal match in God's created world, the perfect match. And so in this instance, what is called for, obviously, is not another man. That is not what God has created for Adam. He needs way more than that. As one commentator said, that he needs an an other other. Someone who is the same as him, but different. The meaning that Adam and Eve are both alike and different at the exact same time. And that's what Adam needed. So the first thing that we see in marriage is that they complement one another. And being complementarian, which is a long word, but being complementarian is actually a theological distinctive that we have as a church at Christ the King. So I want to give a little bit of explanation as to what we mean when we say complementarian, because I even think that word complementarian is complicated in and of itself. And a lot of people have uh, taken that word and abused it with unbiblical and extra-biblical add-ons, you could say. So this is what we mean. God made humans, male and female, in his own image. We believe in Christ, men and women are equal before God. We believe men, or women and men are interdependent and should serve each other. We believe marriage was designed to be between one man and one woman, ideally for life. We believe husbands are called to sacrificial servant leadership of their wives and to love them as Christ loves the church. We believe wives are called to yield voluntarily to their husbands, to submit to them as the church submits to Christ. And we believe only qualified men should be ordained to serve as elders in the local church. Simply put, that's what it means to be complementarian. And I say all that to say we have to be careful not to do what many do who hold this view of being complementarian meaning they add extra-biblical or even unbiblical ideas that have more in common with, you could say, Greek, Roman, and Victorian culture than they do the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Expecting all women in your life, including those who are not married to you, to submit to you because you're a man. Unbiblical. And I'm telling you right now, if you did that to my, any of my women in my family, I almost said I would break your arm, but they are, they're trained enough to know that they could probably break your arm if you try to do that. So just be careful with that. But that's an unbiblical idea. Uh, another example, expecting that your wife's opinion, if you're married, that your wife's opinion isn't valid until you can validate it as a man. Unbiblical. Or, this is a good one, dividing duties in the home and family based on the unclear and unbiblical idea that certain tasks are feminine and certain tasks are masculine. You can see in the text, this is not the ideas that we are to conclude with. This isn't isn't the point of Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. God is not setting Adam above Eve and then giving Eve as a servant to Adam. That's not what's happening here. Eve 
is the helper to Adam's need of being helped. So this is not a demeaning or lesser role for the women either, men. This word helper in the Hebrew does not imply inferiority. Because if it did, that would mean God is inferior. Because the Old Testament writers actually use the word helper for God more often than they do for women. When God is called on to be the helper to Israel. The exact same word. So we should rather view God bringing a woman to Adam more like the Calvary being brought in than a mere servant. Adam needs help, and God brings a helper. So the second thing we see in marriage is the distinction of male and female. In verse 22, God creates Eve and presents her to Adam as his, let me stress this, only option. His only option. He doesn't set out three or four different uh, people before him and says, Adam, take your choice. It is your right to choose here. He gives him the only option, and that option is a woman. So don't forget that it's God who said in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then he remedies the problem with verse 22. And God brought her, woman, to the man. Also remember, Adam has one of the sharpest minds in creation at this particular time. No one else has a sharper mind than Adam besides Eve, who comes along uh, here now in, in the text. So he's just finished thorough biological study of every species on the planet, name them according to their natures and characteristics, and then via this careful scientific research comes to the conclusion that there was none like him. None. Now Adam's words in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is Adam's eureka moment. This is his scientific research come true. This is his discovery that now he has one who has like him, who suits him in every single way. His research is finally completes. And the way that he responds is with a poem of thanksgiving, which is a typical response in God's word to God's miraculous work, is to sing or to make a poem uh, um, recognizing your thanksgiving to God. Adam confirms God's perfect design. You, essentially what Adam is saying is, this is what I was looking for. And now it's Adam's turn to declare creation very good. Now, <clears throat> this truth obviously has greater implications uh, than just marriage. We see in God's presentation and in humanity's affirmation that God intended for one man 
to be with one woman in a marital relationship. That is God's design, His perfect design. But this also implies that God has designed male and female specifically, specially, and purposefully. The author and and pastor, uh, Sam Alberry, he put it this way. He says, humanity is gendered. We are not just human beings, but men and women. So let me just say this. And I'm not going into great detail here. There won't be specific application points here. Um, But if you want to talk with me later about this, I am more than open to talking with you about this and would love to have this conversation But let me just say this first. God has not, he cannot, and he does not make a mistake in who he has created you to be. And that's the first thing you have to understand, especially if that is something that you wrestle with. You have been created a man or created a woman on purpose, by God, and it is right and good and true. This is clearly put before us in these last couple of verses. Through the understanding that marriage is, is, is made by God actually allows us to understand how we are uniquely made as men and women as well. So in verses 24 and 25, we're we're continuing to see God's creative action in his creation as this special union called marriage is created. So by presenting Eve to Adam in verse 22 and by these words of declaration in verse 24 that God gives to us, God is simply introducing to his creation marriage. So we can say marriage is the doing of God. This is not something that we as human beings kind of creatively came up with to, to, so that we can have better insurance plans. Marriage is God's doing from the very beginning. But we also see that it's a, marriage is a display of God as well. So we could say uh, marriage is sacred. And we see this both in the pre-fall and post-fall realities. So before the fall, uh, the relationship between Adam and Eve was to be a picture of God's love and relationship with his image bearers. This perfect image of that. But then after the fall, the husband's love for his wife would now come to picture Christ's love for his bride, the church. And the wife's response to her husband would picture the church's love for Christ. So both pre-fall and post-fall both remind us that the companionship we are supposed to have within marriage is to remind us of God's desire to have an intimate relationship with his people. And that's being put on display for us in every marriage that we see throughout the world. This is why the Old Testament writers would use the word marriage to describe the relationship that God desired with his people. 
So we recognize that the marriage is sacred. It's given to us by God. It's the doing of God. It's the display of God. But we also recognize in verses 24 and 25 that marriage is earthy. That marriage is not just this kind of high and mighty sacred reality that's up here that's untouchable and, and that we've, we've kind of reached some, um, you know, some plateau or some pe- mountain peak here because we are married, but that marriage is actually more down to earth than anything else. And you see this simply in verses 20, 24 and 25. The, the leaving of parents implies a public act. To, to, to leave your mom and dad and to, to cling to your spouse. And then uh, holding fast to his wife it, it implies exclusivity. Meaning marrying other people is not an option. And then the, the two shall become one flesh implies permanence. It implies a lastingness. And that's not just through a sexual union, which it is part, it is that, but it also involves um, soul and spirit. The intellect, every part of you is one with your spouse. This, there's a realness of marriage here. There's a grittiness to marriage here. That, that while it is the doing and displaying of God... Marriage, at the very same time, is hard. Marriage is work. This is what, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to do weddings. And Tara and I typically will do the marriage counseling beforehand. And it's like, it's one of our favorite things because we do like six weeks of marriage counseling. And for half of that time, maybe a little bit longer, we just talk about how sinful the, 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 this, this new bride-to-be and this new husband-to-be are. It's a really cheery time. Um, but we just want to make sure that they understand this, this earthiness of marriage. That marriage is not always up here, but most of the time it's down here. And that it's hard and that it's work. And that marriage requires patience and grace and mercy and love, and the only way that we can have all of those things is, is because of what we find um, in Christ from God. He is the one who gives us that patience. He's the one who gives us that grace and mercy and love to, to love this one who is the same as us, but also very different. So as you offer your spouse this patience, grace, mercy, and love that has been offered to you in Christ, it's here in the earthiness of marriage that the gospel shines brightly. So understand this as we close. Because I know there's a lot of us in here who are married, and there's a lot of us in here who are not married. There's a lot of us in here who have really solid marriages and things are going really well for you, and there's a lot of you in here that things are not going well. So let me just say this to you. Being married is not your end game. Marriage is not the gospel. Your flourishing as a human being is not dependent on your marriage or lack thereof. 
A marriage will not settle your restless heart. Only Christ can do that. Married people are not people who have reached life's pinnacle and achieved ultimate success. They're not. They're just as broken and just as in need of the gospel as you are. And the reason why is because marriage is not God's ideal plan for everyone's life. So let's stop making it that. The Apostle Paul backs me up on this. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, It might be better for you to remain single. You're more free to serve Christ, Paul says, if you're single. So if marriage is not God's end game for human flourishing, then it must be something else, right? If marriage is not the gospel, then it must be something else. It must be this deeper reality that the union of flourishing is not marriage, but that it's a union with God in Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful that maybe we've had some of our, I know I have, have have had some of my own presuppositions um, shattered this week through the study of your truth in in Genesis chapter 2 here. Reminding us that, that the things that we seem to make ultimate are not ultimate. Even in the beauty of, 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 a, of, of marriage, it's not ultimate. So God, I pray that as we, um, as we continue just to dig into to Genesis, God, that we would recognize that what is ultimate, what truly brings human flourishing is not necessarily in our human relationships, but ultimately in the relationship that we have with you uh, that Christ makes possible through his life, death, and resurrection. God, our true human flourishing is found only uh, in that union, the union that we have with Christ. And so, God, I pray for those who... Um, who, have, who have known this union for many years with Christ, that they would uh, know it even more so now. And I also pray for those friends who are here and who are listening who don't yet know this union, that they would. They would see that whatever, um, whatever uh, other ways of flourishing that they are spending their lives on uh, are useless and worthless and just leave them restless. God, I pray that they would find their rest in Jesus today. And we pray in his name. Amen.